Hello and welcome back to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Molly McEnany, and this week we're talking about health. May is National Mental Health Month, and just this year, the devastating toll of the pandemic has greatly impacted many Americans, one in five of which already experience mental illness each year. But along with mental health, women's right to health care has been challenged. Just this past week, a Supreme Court draft opinion was leaked indicating that the court's conservative majority could soon overturn Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is the historic 1973 Supreme Court decision that made abortion legal in the first trimester of a woman's pregnancy. And this past Wednesday, in the wake of the leak, Republican lawmakers blocked a bill that would codify reproductive rights into law for good. The proposed Women's Health Protection Act would codify the Roe v. Wade ruling while also banning requirements some states have put into place related to abortion care, such as waiting periods and mandatory doctor visits before the procedure. But without the 60 votes needed to overcome a GOP-led filibuster, legislation failed in the Senate 49-51. to President Joe Biden condemned Senate Republicans for failing to act at a time when women's constitutional rights are under unprecedented attack. And it runs counter to the will of the majority of American people. Consistently, over 60% of Americans do not want to overturn Roe v. Wade, according to a recent poll from Politico. With that being said, the GOP has continued to put forth legislation limiting women's access to health care in states around the country. So far this year, 1,991 total restrictions related to sexual and reproductive health have been introduced across 46 states and the District of Columbia. The most common enacted are the 15-week abortion ban and the Texas-style bounty hunter enforcement mechanism. Some of these restrictions also limit access to abortion pills, and there have been proposals to ban birth control, IUDs, and Plan B. So this week, I sat down with Luz Reyes-Martin, VP of Community Engagement and spokesperson for Planned Parenthood Central Coast, to talk about what California is doing to prepare for the potential influx of people seeking reproductive care, as well as how Californians would fare in a post-Roe America. All right. So can you give some context on how overturning Roe v. Wade and passing the decision to the states affects women in California specifically? It's a really great question. And I think first, it's important to note that the opinion that was leaked that, uh, you know, we're all responding to was a draft. So Roe v. Wade is still the law of the land and abortion remains legal. However, it's it's clear that the intent behind that draft, which appears to have majority support, is really to begin to unravel um, the rights that we've had for nearly 50 years. You know, I think another thing that we're, you know, really mindful of is that when we talk about abortion care and reproductive care, that it affects women, trans men, and non-binary folks. So, you know, if, if this ends up being the decision, and essentially this goes back to, you know, a fight Um, state by state, it's really outrageous that it will depend on your zip code and where you live, um, your your rights to reproductive care. I'm really proud that in California, um, we have a governor and a state legislature that are working hard to strengthen and expand access. In California, Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California, um, which is our statewide group representing all of the individual affiliates in California. Um, We're all working together to sponsor 13 bills that are making their way through the state legislature, and they're all moving along. And those are really intended to do 
a number of things. Primarily, it's work that came out of the California Future of Abortion Council. These 13 bills are just one example of the work we're doing in the state legislature to increase legal protections, to increase access. We expect tomorrow with the governor's May revise announcement of the budget that there will also be uh, a significant investment um, in uh, access in California. And you've also heard the governor and our legislative leaders, Tony, Senator Tony Atkins and Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, also talk about introducing a constitutional amendment. In California, we're doing the work. We're, we're preparing to shore up that support uh, for people who live here and also people who will be coming from, from other states to seek care here. Yeah. So you see that happening in the state legislature right now. And is there anything that the Central Coast branch is, you know, ramping up to kind of expand access to reproductive care for out of state people specifically in this location? Absolutely. So what you'll hear, you know, from me today and you'll hear from us, you know, throughout is we're not backing down, we're doubling down. Um, So we are hiring more doctors, nurses, staff to expand access here on the Central Coast. In the last year, um, we opened a new health center in Oxnard, and that was to begin to expand care. Um, So we are doing everything we can and we can do here on the Central Coast to ensure that we are prepared and we are we're not going anywhere. So overall, how do organizations like Planned Parenthood assist women outside of abortion care? Why should public facilities like Planned Parenthood continue to be supported? Yeah, you know, people come to our doors for many different reasons. Some come for for care, for abortion care. People come for um, STI testing and treatment, for cancer screenings, for family planning, meaning birth control, for sterilization. There's really a whole host of, of what encompasses reproductive care. And for many of the patients that we see, we are their first choice. You know, we provide expert care with compassion um, and without judgment. And we are trusted, you know, providers um, in the communities that we serve. So there are many reasons why uh, patients come come to us and why it's so important for us in this moment to really make sure that um, our patients and our community know that our doors are open and that we're here to, to care for you and that we're prepared to expand access to ensure that that access, you know, remains here on the Central Coast. And some states have even begun to propose a ban on contraception and birth control. So what are the needed benefits of these medications and prescriptions outside of preventing unwanted pregnancy? So people choose uh, birth control for a variety of reasons. But I think what's really important to reiterate is that what we're talking about is who has power to make decisions about you know, what you're going to do with with your life and your body and your future. And at Planned Parenthood, we believe that you are the expert decision maker in your own life, that you should hold the power to make the decision that's best for you, for your family and your future. You know, we're, we're not going to debate the benefits of having, uh, you know, birth control or not. I think that really gets into, you know, women and, and like I mentioned, you know, other people who can become pregnant having full equality as citizens in this country. This is health care. Contraception is health care and abortion is health care. You know, what we're really, you know, standing on and communicating is that no politician or unelected judge should have the ability to take these rights away from you. And I think that's important to note that no matter what the reason people decide to take birth control or things like that, it should be a decision that's made on the basis of what a female identifying or, you know, transgender male person says 
and that communicates with their doctor, which also leads me to a very important question or what are the economic impacts of an abortion reversal ruling? How will this reversal disproportionately impact the accessibility of public health facilities for low income and BIPOC communities in Santa Barbara and around the country in the state? Yeah, well, I think it was very telling um, this week that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen um, in a, a, a committee meeting, I think it was, um, really went to the heart of this economic question. And she said that limiting or eliminating access to abortion would have very damaging effects on the economy and would set women back decades. Um, and, you know, she further went on to say that denying women access to abortion increases their odds of living in poverty or needing public assistance. So, you know, she's really pointing out what we all know, which is that limiting access to abortion and reproductive health care primarily affects poor and vulnerable women and women of color because wealthy, wealthy folks will always be able to find the resources or the connections to access care. And, and that's what we see, you know, really across the health care spectrum is that folks in rural communities um, that are, you know, low-income folks and people of color are disproportionately affected in healthcare generally. And that is absolutely extended uh, when you talk about reproductive care and abortion care. According to a recent study, the U.S. has the highest rate of maternal mortality in the industrialized world. In 2020, over 850 women were identified as having died of maternal causes in the United States, compared with the just over 750 in 2019. Also in 2020, the maternal mortality rate for non-Hispanic Black women was 55.3 deaths per 100,000 live births, 2.9 times the rate for non-Hispanic white women. According to the Commonwealth Fund, policy implications are the reason why even preventable maternal mortality deaths occur. While the reasons behind the high U.S. maternal mortality rate are multifaceted, their findings suggested that an undersupply of maternity providers, especially midwives, and lack of access to comprehensive postpartum supports are contributing factors to the high maternal mortality rate. An estimated total maternal morbidity cost for all U.S. births in 2019 was determined to be over $32 billion from conception through to the child's fifth birthday. This amounts to around $8,600 in additional cost to society for each maternal child pair. And anonymously, of course, coming back to the Central Coast branch, how have patients reacted to this? Do you Have you had any comments from patients or things like that where they've expressed concerns about the Roe v. Wade reversal? Yeah, I think what we're seeing, whether it's in our our call center or in our health centers or with our supporters um, out in the community, there's a lot of confusion. Um, And I think that's a a bit of what has happened in the chaos of the leaked opinion is what does this mean? What are the potential implications of this? So I think that's definitely part of what's happening is just confusion, fear, you know, fear for for yourself and fear for your, your children, your friends or loved ones that you may have in other parts of the country or even or even here in California. I think there's this real unnerving sense among folks about what's going on with with our democracy, um, with our rights. And, and where does this go? One thing that I've heard really from from many of our supporters here on the Central Coast um, and I think likely elsewhere is the real realization that this will not end with Roe. And, and we're already seeing that. We're seeing that with politicians in other states um, or even in Congress really talking about you know, a national ban on abortion being 
a next target. We're hearing U.S. senators talking about other Supreme Court cases, like, you know, ones that allowed for unmarried people to access contraception. I mean, it's really uncharted territory in many ways. We've never had a constitutional right taken back. And that's really, you know, kind of the terms that we need to be talking about this in. We're talking about removing constitutional rights from from American citizens and from people who, who live here. And it's really outrageous and it will not stop with Roe. So that's why we're really working together across, you know, coalitions. I think coalition building is going to be really important to really fight back. This will not be the end of legal abortion. We really feel that this is the beginning of a, a new movement or a new phase in this movement to really secure these rights once and for all. And it is quite unprecedented, as you said. And thinking about a federal ban, when we think about how, oh, thinking about my safety, I'm in a blue state, I'm going to be okay. The federal ban would usurp all state laws. So it becomes a question of why do you think this issue has become so controversial? Are there patterns that you see as someone who's in the care provider field regarding the demographic of pro-choice versus pro-life? I mean, as much as you can comment on this, please do. I think really, you know, as healthcare providers, our focus is to provide care and and to do that without judgment. It's not uncommon to take care for folks who maybe at one point were were not supportive um, of of reproductive care or abortion care. And and we open our doors to them and treat them with the same compassion and expert care that we would anyone else. I think to the question of whether this is controversial, you know, an overwhelming majority, 80% of Americans support the rights we have under Roe v. Wade. So that's, you know, just really important for people to to recognize Um, what we have is through decades of of work from, you know, anti-abortion movements is to restrict voting rights to gerrymander, you know, throughout the country where we have this situation where our elected folks in Congress are not representative of the people of this country. And so the more that we can, you know, communicate that and really have people understand that fundamentally, we're talking about democracy. When 80% of the people disagree with what's what's happening at this federal level, we really need to talk about what does this mean for our democracy? Yeah, representatives doesn't really quite feel like the word to describe the position that a lot of lawmakers are in. Voting access is important, and it's easy to say, everyone go out and vote, when we look at severely restricted access to voting for communities of color, for people in these spaces who they're not given the chance to vote, and so thus not a lot of change comes about it. So it is easy to say, just go out and vote, go out and vote. But there actually has been an attack on our democracy on the state level for that very reason. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. So finally, I guess I kind of want to turn this to a hopeful you know, change. What are the goals of the Central Coast branch of Planned Parenthood moving forward, whether or not Roe v. Wade is overturned. I know you mentioned that you're always going to keep providing excellent care, but also keep fighting. Yeah, I think number one is, you know, continuing to provide care and seeking any possible, you know, avenue to expand care, expand access. 
I think we, along with our, our partner affiliates in California, are going to be prepared to care for patients from out of state. And I think, you know, putting my action fund hat on, which is, you know, the, the, the advocacy side of the organization, it's, of course, continuing this fight. I think it's really important for people to recognize that we didn't get here overnight. This has really been a 50-year concerted effort to, to get to where we are. So change is not going to happen overnight. And we really need our supporters and people who, who care about this issue and care about health care, care about democracy, to be with us for the long haul. We are going to need long-term grassroots organizing from the bottom up and the top down everywhere in this country. California, I think, is such, is such a great model in so many ways. You know, we have a governor and a legislature who have a lot of reproductive rights champions. That doesn't happen by, by accident or overnight. That has been the result of decades of work from Planned Parenthood affiliates, from our partner organizations throughout the state to build up that political power from, you know, your city councils to, you know, to school boards, to assembly, to governor. You know, this is, it's a long-term work that, that we do in coalition with other organizations to get, you know, to a position where we are now, where we have these amazing reproductive rights champions, not only at the, you know, in our state legislature and leading our state, but our congressional delegation has a lot of great champions. And, you know, I referenced it earlier, but the California Future of Abortion Council released a report in December, which outlines, you know, really the broad spectrum of things that California can do to, to prepare for what's coming. And the goal really is that that could, you know, hopefully be a blueprint for other states to seek to, you know, do some of this work. And so, you know, the, the hopeful message is that all is not lost, but we, this is going to be, you know, a, a long haul. We need folks to be engaged more than ever. Voting is still incredibly important to vote in every seat in every election um, and to work together with local organizations, whether it's Planned Parenthood or another, to do this long-term advocacy and organizing work that we're going to need. Well, thank you so much, Liz, for coming on the show. It was really amazing to, you know, hear all the things that you have to say and hear how invested not only the Central Coast branches, but Planned Parenthood and other organizations are. So thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Thank you for, for covering this. I think, you know, a lot of our supporters, this is the top of mind issue for them. And so I think it's really important and so appreciative of our local journalists for for covering this and providing, you know, lots of opportunity for, for readers and listeners to learn about what's going on and happy to come on at any time in the future. You know, once that, once we have an actual final decision, you know, we'll see what the language says in there. I think the last thing I'll say uh, that I've been thinking about is, you know, our national uh, CEO, president and CEO, Alexis McGill Johnson has been saying, you know, when you get taken out of the constitution, your fight and your work is to get yourself back in. Um, so that that really frames for us kind of what 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 this movement has to be in the future. Well, this will definitely have to be a future discussion again once the decision is made. I mean, everything is kind of up in the air right now, but definitely I agree. Do vote. Do do as much as you can. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful having you on the show. So nice to meet you. Thank you so much. At the state and national level, the lack of inpatient psychiatric beds has been an issue for many patients who need and seek help. 
Santa Barbara County's Behavioral Wellness Department explains why and how their crisis stabilization unit has been utilized to provide care for mental health patients. The ND's Jennifer Yoshikoshi has the story. The lack of psychiatric inpatient beds have been observed to be a crisis on a national level. In Santa Barbara County, we suffer the same issue of not enough beds for our population. The Behavioral Wellness Department of the county explains why this is a problem. And with May being Mental Health Awareness Month, Tony Navarro and Suzanne Grimacy from Behavioral Wellness share the mental health resources they provide for the community. All right, so Tony and Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me today on the Indie Podcast. To start off, could you each give a quick introduction about yourselves? Hi, I'm Tony Navarro. And I'm the director of the Santa Barbara County Behavioral Wellness Department. We're the department that um, covers the alcohol, drug, and mental health services for county residents. Um, Actually, I'm relatively new to this position. May 13th marks month five for me here in Santa Barbara, so I'm relatively new to this system of care. But I've been a county behavioral health director for nearly eight years now. And prior to that was a county mental health director overseeing clinical programs. So overall, 32 years in the field, and all of it has been in community-based, county-funded mental health systems. And my name is Suzanne Grimacy. I have been with the Department of Behavioral Wellness for 24 years. My roles have varied over time. I've been over the clinical operations. I've been within quality care management for about the last nine years. I've served as the public information officer and over the quality care management division. And the last few years, I've been focusing more on county crisis communications, as well as um, PIO work with the department. Yeah, well, it sounds like we have two people who have a lot of experience within the field, within the county and outside of the county. To start off, I would like to know what does behavioral wellness provide for Santa Barbara County? We are a department of approximately 435 staff, and we provide all range of services from crisis response and services and de-escalation and intervention to outreach and engagement, intensive therapy services, including medication support, therapy services, group therapy, case management, and we do have inpatient support at our psychiatric health facility, also what we call the PUF. Our goal is to always provide services in the least restrictive of settings and to help people to come out of that place of crisis and be able to stabilize as quickly as possible, but in as least restrictive of a setting as possible. Um, There are clients who are open for outpatient services that might experience a crisis and they've got their team right there to help them to meet their needs and to deescalate and to put in extra supports that are needed. And then we also have a very robust crisis continuum. We have a crisis stabilization unit, so a 23-hour, very home-like environment aimed to avoid hospitalization. We have our crisis residential programs where people can stay for a longer period of time as they're stabilizing. We have our crisis teams, which law enforcement can bring people or others can come from the community to seek stabilization. So we have a lot of pieces in place to help to reduce someone's place of crisis and to stabilize them and hopefully avoid a hospitalization whenever possible. And so touching back on the crisis stabilization unit you just mentioned, it was a lot newer in 2016 to the county and not a lot of people knew about it. How much has it progressed since then? 
Yeah, so the st crisis stabilization unit was the first ever opened in Santa Barbara County and it opened in November of 2015. It's an eight bed unit. At that time, we staffed up for four beds. You're right, it was brand new. We wanted to make sure we were pairing the staffing with the need and we didn't know exactly what we would see. So we have seen through the last couple of years, likely very much connected to the pandemic, a lower rate of law enforcement dropping off clients. We used to see a higher rate. We continue to see a high rate of referrals from the hospital. We stayed at our four bed capacity because that pairs with what the need is from the community. We've seen impact in our staffing over the last couple of years with the pandemic, everything from the testing positive and having to balance how many people you can come in based on safety. And that likely has impacted the community's awareness that the crisis stabilization unit is a resource. Our crisis stabilization unit is also unique in that it is a voluntary place, right? It's not mandated for treatment. If someone wants to go there, they can go there. And if they choose to go there, they can leave at any time. It's a voluntary unit. At the time that Santa Barbara, we secured funding for that, that was the avenue best to get this stood up because the community was expressing this need and there was this gap of service that we anticipated the CSU could provide for us. I think, Lay persons outside of our field specifically have ideas about what is needed in a crisis. And so sometimes hearing for law enforcement, others, family members, hearing that it's a voluntary unit, it's not a locked unit, are sometimes more likely to choose other options versus going to the CSU for 23 hours. And I think that has been a particular challenge in getting the community's awareness, law enforcement, and other agencies aware of just the valuable asset that is to a system, giving someone the ability to just take a break for 23 hours where they're cared for, where they get good food, where they have laundry and their clothes can be washed and they're given other clothes to wear in the meantime, a nice comfortable lounge bed to rest in and very supportive staff to listen, to hear, and to provide resources. And so I think, again, as Suzanne said, for a number of reasons since 2015, and it's particularly during the pandemic, our CSU has been underutilized. And we're really focusing right now on how to really re-engage the community in, the, in the, that asset and how that can be valuable to us in our system. And for those who are experiencing what feels like is a mental health emergency, and one may call a crisis, but may not need a higher level of care. And has the initiative of the CSU been effective in decreasing um, the amount of patients who have gone into 5150 holds? Yes, and we think it also has helped for people's length of stay when they are staying in a psychiatric hospital. So we see people that leave from the puff earlier because they can discharge to the CSU prior to transitioning home. Uh, admittedly, it has been not used at the rate that we had hoped and expected. We're not full every day with the four beds that we have. However, for those who choose that as an option, it's highly effective. And I think that's the piece that we need to get out more because there's such a stigma around someone who's been on a 5150 hold stepping down to an unlocked unit. When people hear that someone has been had, there has been an application, because that's what it is, for a 5150 hold, and then there's a decision, does that person go into a psychiatric facility for at least three days or longer, or does that person, maybe the hold gets rescinded before the 72 hours, but whenever anyone's heard that someone's been on a 5150 hold, when we talk about stepping them down, down to an unlocked unit, 
sometimes family members, you know, other authorities who are in that person's life feel a little uncertain about that. And so that's the piece that we're trying to change. That is the image that we're trying to change. That it actually is another 23 hours that we can spend time with them, that we can open a case so they can be so that they can maintain ongoing treatment with us in our system of care, another 23 hours to find the resources and the support that they need to stay out of a future 5150 situation. And what else do you think that the county kind of lacks in providing care to treat patients who are frequently calling for mental health needs? That's a good question. I think it's important to recognize also that we as a community provide the mental health care for our community. So it's not all the Department of Behavioral Wellness. We provide services to the moderate, the high level of mental illness of need. CENCAL, as an example, is another one of our partners who provides services for Medi-Cal beneficiaries for low to moderate levels of need. When you say, what do we need? I think we're doing a good job. I think we can always make it stronger of how closely we work together mm-hmm. so that we always know where we can help to get someone linked to resources. Our priority population and our charge is to serve those who are most under-resourced in our communities. So our primary recipients of care are those who receive Medi-Cal and Medicare. That is who we are charged with serving. Now, there are services that we provide in our system that also address the needs of those with private insurance, um, but but our charge uh, is to serve those Medi-Cal beneficiaries. So that's really important distinction. What I'm proud to say is that our crisis line and the access number is available 24-7 to all of the county residents. And that goal of that team is to not only pick up the phone when you call, but then to help you find that ongoing care that you need, whether it's within our system because you are a Medi-Cal or a Medicare beneficiary, or to help you connect with your private system of care with your insurance ongoing. So that's really the key. So the crisis services really are, we are the first line, if you will, of contact for many people. When you talk about what is it that we need, we need staff. Behavioral health and nationally, but in particular in the state of California is in an unprecedented crisis. We've been saying those words for COVID. They have created now ripples in unprecedented crises and things in workforce, especially in behavioral health. Averaging across the state, 30 to 40% vacancy rates in clinical programs. We need staffing. We need people who care about caring for others to go to our website and look for the jobs that we have available. We currently have several vacancies, probably about 80 in our system right now. And another issue that a lot of hospitals in Santa Barbara have been struggling with is putting patients who come in into their inpatient beds at their hospitals, and they're often sent out to other counties to find that care. Could you touch on that issue a little bit? We actually don't have medical inpatient psychiatric beds in our county for longer than the 72-hour hold, and that is one of the issues. But aside from that, Suzanne maybe has a little more history to talk about the use of the EDs in uh, 72-hour holds. Yeah, so this is right now what you're touching on. This is a chronic shortage throughout the state and nationwide, as you're probably aware. So this is not unique to Santa Barbara County. And what Tony just mentioned, there have been times where our local hospitals, in our case at Bee Cottage Hospital, there were additional beds available for Medi-Cal beneficiaries placed on involuntary 5150 holds. Those beds are no longer available. So what we have in our county is just the county's, what 
Tony described, our psychiatric health facility are just 16 beds. But I do want to say that, again, this is not unique to our county. This is throughout the state and throughout the nation. And in fact, there was very recently something called the 1115 waiver, where the State Department of Healthcare Services had a stakeholder group to talk about. So right now, our PUF is capped at 16 beds due to federal laws. That's not something behavioral wellness decided on. So that's due to federal laws. And the state is working through this waiver to appeal these laws so that the PUF would be permitted to have more beds. But the um, cap of 16 beds is due to federal laws. So we're limited. That's all we can do. So when those beds do become full, we do have contracts with other hospitals. And that's why you hear of people being hospitalized outside of Santa Barbara County. And then you look at adolescents. That's another example. We have zero beds for adolescents within Santa Barbara County. But also keeping in mind, this has been over the years, our intentional development of our crisis system so that it's more than just a mobile crisis response team, that we actually had a full, robust crisis response system, because that's a known factor in preventing the number of inpatient beds being needed, is if you have a strong crisis system. Well, thank you so much for giving us some insight on that. I know it's a a big issue that a lot of people have been talking about and to hear about how it's a nationwide problem puts a bigger perspective on that. And so to wrap things up, how can people reach behavioral wellness if they do need care for mental health? Suzanne? Yes. So our, we have a 24 seven access line. The number is 888-868-1649. Thank you so much. And is there any other information that you would like our listeners to know about? I'd just like to say it is May Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, The symbol for that is the pistachio green, some people call it, uh, ribbon. But I really encourage everyone to wear the green ribbon and to have a conversation and and maybe even wear one and keep one in your pocket to share. So when you're standing in line, wherever you may be, or walking across campus and someone says, what's the green ribbon for? Take a minute to share about a story that really encourages people to think about mental health as part of their physical health, to really uplift mental health awareness, the same that we do physical health awareness. So that's, that's, my, that's what I would like to say. Yes, it's May is Mental Health Month, but it's also our 60th anniversary as a department. So we have a 60 year history of providing behavioral health or mental health and substance use disorder services within our community. And we're proud of that. And we're excited to keep it going. Yeah, well, congratulations on that 60-year anniversary. And hopefully this conversation that we just had brings a lot more awareness to Mental Health Awareness Month and for that to carry on through the rest of the year. So thank you so much for joining me today on this interview. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for having us. Thank you, Jennifer. Once again, I'm your host, Molly McEnany. Tune in next week for another episode.